You're listening to In Residence, a podcast out of the Kimmel Harding Nelson Center for the Arts. KHN is a residency program for writers, composers, visual, and interdisciplinary artists. We provide artists from around the country and across the world with space and time to focus and create. We would like to share their hard work with you. so excited for today's episode. I have been working on this one for a while, um, and I think it's just a, a really perfect collision of three residents who are exploring kind of pioneering histories in ways that are smart, funny, and really, really entertaining. So uh, get excited for this one. In this episode, our residents explore pioneering personalities in history and primary sources as entry points into performance, writing, and art making. In a very first for the In Residence podcast, we will hear from an artist as he is in the middle of a river. 2015 resident Steve Snell will talk to us about his adventure art practice from a kayak as he navigates the beautiful Missouri. Poet Eric Campbell uses history to clever, bitingly funny effect in his work as an askew lens through which his characters act in the world. First, playwright, performer, and comedian Anna Abhow Elliott shares how she explores character and community through primary sources, which can range from court transcripts to internet search histories. That would be a good one because it has bees, the fricative... Bobby Brown. Brown Bobby. Bobby Brown. Testing. One, two. Whitney Houston. Whitney Houston. Bobby Brown. <laughs> Bobby Brown. <laughs> Bacon. Bacon Chewbacca. These are just, these are mic checks that I've collected over the, over the years. <laughs> Anna Abhow Elliott, and I make performances, and that often means I write them and act in them. That's the most likely combination that you'll see me in. I'm working on research for a new play about reconstruction and clan violence in Spartanburg County, South Carolina, from which I have some pretty incredible primary texts to make a show out of. A lot of my work is based on history and doing research with primary sources. And that takes me in a lot of different directions and also has gotten me interested in primary sources of all kinds. I've been doing another sort of genre of work that I like to call search histories, where I use found text from the internet or from other devices that I have. For example, I don't really know how to use my iPad and I accidentally press the voice command button and if you don't say anything, then Siri starts suggesting things that you might want to ask her. 
with the heading, Some Things You Can Ask Me. And these questions were so bizarre and profound and uh, often ominous that I started collecting them and put them together in a, a poem that tells the story of a, a very agitated person. And to me, it's sort of a, a negative space gets created where you use your imagination to fill in who would be asking these questions of their device. And it gets pretty weird in there. Some things you can ask me. Get college football rankings. Google the War of 1812. Bing Nora Jones. Did the Giants win? Where's Brian? What's trending on Twitter? Some things you can ask me. Play Infinity Blade 2. Is my daughter at home? What time is it in Berlin? Play my party mix. Get a table for three tonight. Set a timer for five minutes. Some things you can ask me. Should I bring an umbrella? Show the timer. Are we there yet? How long do greyhounds live? When is my wife's birthday? Set a timer for five minutes. Some things you can ask me. When is my next meeting? When is sunrise in Paris? What's my ETA? Call Brian. Call home. Show the timer. Some things you can ask me. Where's Brian? Get college football rankings. How far away is the sun? Turn on Do Not Disturb. Search Twitter for San Francisco Giants. Make the screen brighter. Some things you can ask me. Enable Wi-Fi. Remind me to call mom. Find coffee near me. What's trending on Twitter? Who is Barack Obama? Set an alarm for 6.30 a.m. Some things you can ask me. Play my party mix. Where is my sister? How high is Mount Everest? Find coffee near me. Call home. What movies are playing? Some things you can ask me. Set up a meeting at nine. Show me my tweets. Get college football rankings. Find Disney movies. Call my brother at work. Play Nora Jones. Some things you can ask me. Find Disney movies. Google the War of 1812. How many dollars is 45 euro? Read my new messages. Set an alarm for 6.30 a.m. Call Emily's mobile. Some things you can ask me. What's the Giants roster? Pause the timer. Find Disney movies. Email Brian. Where's Brian? How is the Nikki doing? Some things you can ask me. Find a gas station. Turn on Bluetooth. How far away is the sun? Call 408-555-1212. Turn on Do Not Disturb. Make the screen brighter. Some things you can ask me. Remind me to call mom. Learn how to say my name. Read my new messages. Email Brian. How windy is it out there? 
Who is Barack Obama? Some things you can ask me. Play my party mix. Where is my sister? Check my email. Will it be hot today? Set a timer for five minutes. Play some blues. Some things you can ask me. Set up a meeting at nine. Google the war of 1812. My mom is Susan Conway. Turn on Bluetooth. How's the weather this week? Set a timer for five minutes. Some things you can ask me. When is sunrise in Paris? Pause the timer. What's trending on Twitter? Who is near me? How high is Mount Everest? Play iTunes radio. Some things you can ask me. Remind me to call mom. Are we there yet? Turn on Bluetooth. Call 408-555-1212. Did the Giants win? Tweet, great show last night. So I should probably tell our listening audience that you performed this live here in Nebraska City to uproarious laughter. So I had to leave the room while you recorded so as not to ruin the recording. So to start our conversation, this particular work seems to have a different tone and a much more contemporary source than a lot of your other work based from primary source texts. So this Siri project is a good example of my sense of humor and a lot of the funny work I make. Um, I do a lot of improv comedy and I've done some stand-up and stuff. Um, but I am also interested in primary sources that carry a lot more moral heft and ask big, troubling questions about American history and our society. So one of those plays I made with a New York theater company called The Assembly, and it's called Homesick. And it examines the Weather Underground, who were a group of militant radicals in the 1970s. And then I'm also working on a play based on court transcripts collected in 1870 and 71 in a county of South Carolina where Klan violence was so bad that they finally declared martial law and the federal government intervened. So how do you reconcile these two different approaches? I think that the structure of those two things are actually quite similar. So in a way, I'm... I'm examining primary sources, um, or I'm examining sources that I didn't write. Um, of course, the content is vastly different because asking Siri randomly generated questions is hilarious and weird and kind of unnerving. But And then reading transcripts about Klan violence and voter intimidation in the 1870s is harrowing and sad and incredible. So I think those are two good examples actually of extremes of, of what examining a primary source can do. And I get a lot out of them because language is really just this puzzle that I'm very f interested in. And the the different ways that people use it as a tool. Um, but even while you're using it as a tool, you're dropping all this information along the way about who you are and 
where you come from and your education and what you care about and what you want other people to see you as. How do you research and present these voices so that they feel relevant to an audience today? I've really appreciated my time at Kimmel Harding Nelson for a reason I couldn't have guessed exactly until I got here, but I've been learning a lot about John Brown, and he's a very interesting, controversial figure who I think speaks a lot to a lot of questions we're dealing with right now in our country. John Brown is a controversial figure in American history because he declared a personal war against the institution of slavery and the government that came with it, which meant that he fought violently in Bleeding Kansas against pro-slavery border ruffians. And also he and a small band of people uh, took over Harper's Ferry, which was a raid intended to incite a slave revolt but instead just ended with everyone getting arrested or killed. Uh, But that was all right before the Civil War, and it would come to pass that he was on the right side of history. But his means are, are violent ones that today we don't encourage. I'm fascinated by that and all those contradictions and questions, and I think John Brown meant everything that he did and said and is a fascinating person. Um, But I wouldn't make the choices that he made, certainly. So you're talking a bit about how contemporary perspective shapes the way you treat these primary sources. What kinds of responsibilities do you feel as you use these materials and create performances? I'm working on a project where I use court transcripts that were created in 1870 and 1871 in Spartanburg County, where uh, federal martial law was actually declared because Klan violence was so bad. And a lot of people, uh, witnesses, either who had experienced violence or who were witnesses to violence, came forward and testified about it. And these texts are very incredible. It's hard an interesting work, and it's having me ask a lot of questions about my theatrical process and my voice, you know, as a white northerner, what can I bring to a conversation about racism against African-American people in South Carolina? And my best answer to that is I can, I don't, (laughs) I don't have to. (laughs) Um, If I use these incredible texts where people speak for themselves, um, I think a lot of issues are are brought up and understood in pretty incredible ways. The transcripts also don't read as old-timey. They feel very modern and very familiar in the way that people speak. So with these documents, you're engaging with Spartanburg's past. Are you doing anything specifically to connect with contemporary issues surrounding racism in South Carolina? So I'm working closely with a nonprofit organization in Spartanburg called Speaking Down Barriers that facilitates uh, at least monthly conversations, but often more, um, that are these free forums on racism in America and specifically racism in the greater the greater Spartanburg community. Um, and it's just run by incredible people who are funny and wise and have their facts straight. And 
I was really inspired coming from the North and moving to South Carolina. Um, I had all these assumptions about what a racist, ugly place it would be. And I think, you know, the, uh, the primary exit polls show a lot of racism in South Carolina, but there's also small groups of uh, progressive, really incredible people who I've had the privilege to meet and work with who, you know, choose to live in a red state and choose to work in a red state and choose to promote ideas about community and communication and moving forward that I think are perhaps even more important than if you're sort of in some liberal bastion where you everyone can sit around and agree with each other. I'm not really sure how powerful that is. As you deal with some of these weightier primary source documents, what role does humor play? Comedy is really important to me in getting in touch with a primary source or, or finding out how I'm going to connect personally with this person that's gone or with this document, which is all I have. And trying to put pieces together of a historical figure is always amazing because you find out quotidian details about them that are amazing and hilarious and moving. For example, John Brown was really bad with money and he was always raising all these raising all this money and then blowing it without much forethought because he was such a he was so committed that he thought everything's going to work out just fine. And in a way that's a very tragic thing. But it's also incredibly brave. But then when I started thinking about it in the context of what if you were John Brown's wife or what if you were John Brown's son and you had to hear that he bungled a business deal again or you found out that he made a an, an, a not savvy business decision about wool because he was a shepherd and a wool merchant. Um, and that brings up a whole play that doesn't have to have anything to do with Harper's Ferry, but can just be a play about a guy who doesn't know how to make a budget. And I think that is a very humanizing and important part of the work, too, and something I'm really excited about. Thanks for chatting with us, Anna. It was my pleasure. accompanying Anna's segment is by our former resident Andrew Turpening's band, Athletes and Slacks. Andrew also just released a new album based on his time here at the Kimmel Hardy Nelson Center for the Arts, and we will feature him in an upcoming episode, so stay tuned for that. Steve Snell's artistic practice is a hybrid of painting, sculpture, performance, endurance, and adventure travel. Some of his previous works have involved traversing a river on a sofa frame, going for a long hike in which he encounters Alec Baldwin, and taking his university art students to a local art museum 50 miles away by covered wagon. 
Today, we'll hear from Steve in the middle of his newest artistic adventure, which takes inspiration from Lewis and Clark's travels and cardboard. Steve recently spent seven days floating down the Missouri River. We'll hear from him in his kayak during his float. Um, he'll, He'll come to us from points early on in his travel and right near the end of his aquatic adventure. Hello, this is Steve Snell, and welcome to the Missouri River. This is part of something that I just call adventure art. I don't have a trademark on that term, nor do I think that I'm probably the only person that does this kind of work at all, actually. But for me, it's just a fun and succinct way of describing what I do as an artist, which is use my creative practice, my imagination, my local circumstances to create for myself or for other people interesting, and unusual experiences. And that's at least the first part. Now the second part of adventure art is the image of that experience. And so oftentimes if something is not, you know, up to par with the way I imagine it looking like, you know, like basically like the movies, then I can, you know, after is all said and done, go in there with, you know, my hand and create an image that, uh, maybe does live up to my imagination or what I wanted it to be. Oftentimes these adventures are inspired by, you know, popular culture and the movies, specifically, you know, Americana, American West, the myth of the West, um, but also local history and uh, myths. What am I doing on the Missouri River? Well, I'm on an adventure. I am floating between Nebraska City, Nebraska, and Kansas City, Kansas, in a kayak. So where did this idea come from? It came actually from my stay at the Kimmel Harding Nelson Center for the Arts in Nebraska City. Um, After visiting the Lewis and Clark Visitor Center there and seeing their replica keelboat that's uh, parked outside. And as soon as I saw that, it kind of came this idea to me that I'm going to build myself a keelboat, except I want to build it out of cardboard. And then I'm going to float my cardboard keelboat down the Missouri River because it sounds like a really fun and interesting thing to do. Well, I've spent the last two summers building that cardboard boat, and it's getting there. It won't sink, I'm pretty sure of that. I don't know how it will handle, but um, I ran out of time to actually finish it 
and get it on the water before summer's almost over and uh, school begins again. I teach and so I'm kind of bound by that schedule for doing anything long, long term on the river. So I figured if I can't do it in a cardboard boat, I'll just buy a kayak and I'll do it that way. And I'll make a video of that adventure and I'll paint landscapes like Carl Bodmer did. And I'll talk to people and just hear interesting stories and just look forward to seeing everything that I've never seen before. All along the way I'm painting the landscape that I see, taking inspiration from artists and artist explorers like Carl Bodmer, who did his own series of Missouri River landscapes in the 1830s for a guy named Prince Maximilian, I'm pretty sure. Anyway, my landscapes are not nearly as good as his because I've actually never tried to paint a landscape or seriously tried to paint a landscape until um, this trip. So they're a little amateurish, but I'm having fun and each one's getting better. I'd say the hardest part is just trying to find the time for it in between setting up camp, you know, having enough daylight and making my way down the river at the same time. I'm somewhere just shy of White Cloud, Kansas, and it's a beautiful day. Uh, there's some cloud cover, but the sun's starting to peek out, and the water is relatively calm. That's very different than what it was yesterday, where the winds were really rolling in, and thunderstorms were overhead, and I was forced to take shelter at the Indian Cave State Park until the weather cleared a bit. It's remarkably quiet out here. I see very few people every day. I see a couple fishermen. I saw a lot of fishermen up near Nebraska City. Um, I saw one or two barges pulling, a, pushing, I should say, uh, rocks that they're probably using just to reinforce the, the uh, wing dikes that are lined all along the river. If you've never been on the Missouri River, there's a wing dike every quarter mile or so that's maintained by the Army Corps of Engineers that helps with the channeling of the river. Um, now, like, why keep it channeled? That's one question I've thought about because it seems like the only kind of traffic I see that would need that are the actual barges that are pushing the material to make the dikes to keep it channelized. So they need themselves so they can do what they're doing. But I imagine it also has something to do with flood control. I just don't see a lot of commercial barge traffic. I'm sure it's there, maybe oil tanks and stuff, but I've never seen one yet. But then again, I've only been on the river for three days. So don't take it from me that I'm an expert. I have about four more days to go. I don't know where I'm going to camp tonight. But I'm going to try and find a nice sandbar on the side of the river and uh, have a big fire.
and welcome back to the Missouri River. I am approaching my final nine or so miles as I make my way into the Kansas City waterfront. It's day seven of my river adventure, and all in all, it's been a wonderful experience full of unknowns, and I'm ready to be home. I'm coming into town a little bit early. I'm trying to beat a thunderstorm that's uh, behind me a little bit. And if I paddle hard, I'll get there right about the time that the thunderstorm does. So I can't talk too long. All I will say is that I love this river and I want to paddle more. I would say that this trip has been just long enough that I don't want to do another day but I'm also still wanting more, eventually. It didn't ruin it for me. I saw a lot of interesting things. Lots of blue herons and bald eagles. A couple deer. I saw one kind of rodent swimming across the river one day. I had thunderstorms to outrun. I got chased off the water a couple times by them. I saw the, saw the river in a number of different weather conditions. I'm glad I did this in a kayak and not a cardboard boat. I think the cardboard boat could totally handle the river on a very nice, calm day. But over an extended period of time, the likelihood of having non-calm weather with choppy waves and wind and maybe thunderstorms would be enough that I don't... I think that would be a very bad idea to be in the cardboard boat for. So I need to kind of rethink how far I go with the boat or I need to rethink maybe certain elements of of the boat to be able to withstand you know um, tougher weather like what do I do with the sail when the wind blows I need to find a way to stash it I also should find a way to um, coat the bottom in something stronger than the current fiberglass because as soon as you have to take it up on shore to anything with rocks, it's just going to rip it right up. Well, that's all I have to really say. I'm very glad I did this. I'm very, very, very glad I did. And I hope that more people take inspiration and get out on the Missouri River someday. The more people that care about the river, I think the nicer it'll become. And if not the Missouri River, find a different river or stream or not even water, just something by your house and find something interesting and exciting to do. I'm Steve Snell on the Missouri River talking about adventure art and my trip as it happens. Thanks for listening. Bye. that accompanied Steve's segment is by 2015 resident Mark Rice. 
Mark's composition is included in Steve's video about his river journey, which is called Snacks on the River, and has helped Steve shape the project. We love when our residents collaborate. Next up, Nebraskan poet Eric Campbell shares several of his poems. His new book, The Corpse Pose, was released earlier this year on Red Hen Press. Hello, my name is Eric. (laughs) I almost want to keep that. I almost think that should just be it. I'm going to nail these and then we're out. Take five. Hello, my name is Eric Campbell. I am a homo sapien. I'm originally from Nebraska, and I write poems and essays. And this is one of the former, because the latter are too long. This one's called The Sorrows of the Cold War Reenactor. And the impetus for this was the idea that Civil War reenactors, you know, can get away with it. But what if you're a Cold War reenactor? What if you, what if you were really interested in Khrushchev? Well, this is what might happen. This is the sorrows of the Cold War reenactor. Too many mornings you envy all those Civil War reenactors out in some pastoral plain in Virginia, their public and de facto moral imperative, their metals so shiny and plural. Starting your car is as precarious as your identity because both can go boom. This is why your bumper sticker reads, fate happens, among other things. While you're the only guy you know who only uses foam booths when you can find them. Why you write all of your letters in lemon juice upside down and in Navajo. Your family doesn't understand your letters but appreciates that you write. Some nights you miss Khrushchev so much you call your drunkest friend and ask in double parentheses, do you ever suspect your wife of red thoughts? You always hang up the phone before he can answer because most Americans are too doom eager. Every day the battlefield is everywhere and the parking garage is everywhere. This is why the file on you is five inches thick. It includes photographs, locks of hair, letters to your dead father that rhyme. You will often forget that you compiled the file while deep undercover and in disguise. This one is called The Village Green Preservation Society Considers the Kool-Aid Man. And there's actually a series of these poems about this society, The Village Green Preservation Society, which is also my favorite album by the Kinks. Uh, And it's about a group of people who militate against the way things are. And it begins with two quotations, one from John 19:28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things are now finished, that the scripture might be accomplished, saith, I thirst. And the second is a quotation, hey, Kool-Aid, which is ascribed to a lot of child actors in the 80s. And so here's the poem. The Village Green Preservation Society considers the Kool-Aid man. And they decided that he was scary as hell. 
the way he crashed through walls behind which children were always gathered and thirsty. And how could he know he wasn't interrupting something private like playing doctor or afternoon tea with an imaginary friend? How he didn't give a damn about parents or property damage, perhaps because it was the 80s and the parents were on cocaine and the children were on colored sugar water and the Cold War was getting colder and we'd all seen the day after. Maybe we just didn't have time to think deeply about how creepy that bulbous pitcher-shaped biped was. Scary or not, maybe it wasn't that we were thirsty and wanted a pal or apotheosis. Maybe it's only that we could call to him and he'd appear. somewhat about Vikings, but not. And it's called The Vikings Between Us. I can't find an analog anywhere in my neighborhood for the truth that is pure, slow dread. Instead, I think of the Vikings, all of them, at one point or another, glancing at the horizon to see ships coming that look like their own, but aren't. No Middle Ages mist is necessary nor are the death-beat sounds of distant drums and plague. How candid and gently those ships rowed onto shore, as though the tide were in on the joke, as if it were a homecoming of sorts. And she says she left her husband because she could never tell what he was thinking. And I said, that's what you think, without thinking. The night became a failure of imagination from there, and ended in a bed because we couldn't agree on the Vikings between us. Uh, This is the last poem in an upcoming collection uh, by Red Hen Press, and it's called The Corpse Pose, available at no bookstores (laughs) anywhere, so good luck, suckers. Okay, again, this features the Village Green Preservation Society. It's another long title. It's called The Village Green Preservation Society Considers How the Cartographers Conspired. And it begins with a quotation by William Manchester. Given the states of maps then, it is hardly surprising that so many ships failed to return. Scientists around several tables decided the planet Pluto isn't. This is how the cosmos is nudged by naming, why maps are complicated, then discarded. It's nonsense to think of Dante nowadays and where he happened to place his hells, or how the seven visible spheres became crowns for ancient kings. And if the Vatican is correct, the Virgin ascending at the speed of light hasn't left our galaxy yet. This is why the universe swallows both regular and immaculate conceptions and burps without saying excuse me. Still, we look up often and constellate stars because one must constellate something and read them like tea leaves because magnetic north, among other fixed things, is moving. Confession. I love those early maps of the unfinished, half-assed world, unknown places populated by crypto-anthropological creatures drawn more carefully than continents and the pirate syntax of here-there-be-monsters. 
Marco Polo was correct to see Chinese unicorns instead of rhinoceroses and never mention drinking tea. This is the lot of most mystery, always pushed to our periphery. Last week, Google reduced our hometowns to fields and streets and perfect squares. Unless we close our eyes, we can't find where we used to be anywhere. Thank you, everyone listening alphabetically. Compositions accompanying Eric's segment come from former residents Elizabeth A. Kelly and Josh Goldman. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy these episodes, please help us spread the word. You can subscribe to our podcast series for free on iTunes. And if you would be so kind, please, please give us a rating or review in iTunes. And that wraps up our episode. I'm Amanda Smith, your host and program director here at KHN. KHN is made possible by the generous support of the Richard P. and Lorraine Kimmel Charitable Foundation. The intro and outro music is Sirens by Jeff Harms, who was a resident here in 2008. If you would like more information about our program or to learn about any of our featured artists and residents, please visit our website khncenterforthearts.org or come visit us in Nebraska City.